Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. So, yet another terror attack, another lone wolf coming out of nowhere. Donald Trump seized on the issue, tweeting, When will we learn it is only getting worse? But what is it we could learn? What could we do? Robert Hormatz is vice chairman of Kissinger Associates. Good morning, Robert. What is it that we don't know or, or we could do in these situations, if anything? There's several things I think we could do, one of which is we need better intelligence both within the United States and with our friends and allies around the world. A lot more work has to be done on this. New York City is quite good at this, but not every entity is. Uh, we need a stronger domestic police intelligence capability and police for enforcing of, of the law and of, of, of methods of stopping these sorts of things. Many police forces are not equipped uh, in this country and abroad to deal with these kind of issues. So a lot more work has to be done domestically. And we have to do a lot more with our friends and allies. This is a kind of world war in the sense that it exists, these problems exist in a multitude of countries, as we've seen. It's not just France and Belgium, it's many other countries as well. So we've got to work with our friends and allies. But there are a, a number of things we can do. And also, of course, we have to go after ISIS at its center, which is in Iraq and Syria. But it's not just one thing. It's not just a geographically containable thing, although we have to deal with the geographic manifestations of it. But each city, each state, each government needs to deal with stronger policing and stronger intelligence, and that means using information technology better. ISIS uses information technology to motivate, to recruit, to mobilize. We've got to do a lot better at utilizing information technology to get our message across and to, under the orders of courts, courts have to supervise this, to identify and follow conversations among terrorist groups or expected, anticipated terrorists to, uh, to try to prevent this. It won't be 100% successful, but we can do a lot better. We can't just sit there and do nothing, and these are the kind of things that yeah. would help substantially. Would it be easy to put together a package of a legal package to do that at the federal level. The reason I ask that is obviously everybody thinks this is, is a terrible situation, but you remember after 9-11, the struggles to get the Patriot Act passed and the, the ongoing struggles over what powers it gave the federal government. Well, certainly there'll be a debate, and there should be a debate. These are very tough issues, and we need to protect our civil liberties in this country. That's what we stand for. But there are various ways of doing that, and I think if you have uh, a court system which oversees the process, we should be moving toward a greater degree of government intervention uh, through better intelligence collection, through working with state and local governments. I think there will be a debate, but in the end, we're dealing with a very serious issue. This is a threat to our societies, it's a threat to the societies of our allies, it's a threat to the lives of Americans. and. Abraham Lincoln, during the Civil War, 
temporarily suspended habeas corpus, particularly in the state of Maryland. Uh, was it constitutional? In the end, it was found not to be, but it was necessary right. for the state of the, of, of the country to survive. And I do think we have to oh. have a debate, and I do think we have to get tougher and deal with, uh, with these intelligence issues, utilizing right. modern technology much more aggressively. Again, with court supervision, not just uh, politicians doing whatever they want well, to do. With Kissinger Associates, and of course his public service with the President and the State Department of Secretary Clinton, Robert Hormatz, is with us. We're seeing an urgency, Bob Hormatz, as we stagger from terror event to terror event. You have three times this morning, with your wonderful perspective, said that New York City does this differently. Why is the air different in New York than in other geographies in America and worldwide? Under the um, the direction of uh, of Mayor Bloomberg and uh, Police Commissioner Kelly, uh, a group was set up that was specifically aimed at improving intelligence capability, and they draw drew on people who'd worked for the FBI, the CIA, the Treasury, other institutions in Washington to help do this. This is a very well-developed group. They work with groups in France. They work with the Israelis. They work with a lot of others. They work through using modern technology. They work through surveillance cameras. They work also by having good relations with various communities, including the Muslim community. There are a lot of Muslims on the police force in New York. People forget that. You need to work with those communities to gain their confidence so that they will provide you with information, the police force uh, and other authorities with information on things that they see. So working with various communities, minority communities, the Muslims in particular, but others as well, it helps to get intelligence. Europe has not done this as well and needs to do it better. New York can be a good model. It's not perfect, but it is a very good model. It's the best in the U.S. and I think one of the best in the world, perhaps with the Israelis and, and, and the Paris uh, police are also quite good at this also. Uh, our good model is to say that uh, former Mayor Bloomberg is the principal owner of Bloomberg LP, yes, the owner is. of this radio station. And we he and Ray this. Kelly are good friends, but I think they have really done a good job, and they could be helpful. And Giuliani also did a lot of work on this. Mm-hmm. So it's not a partisan well, thing. It's something that they've understood. New York's threatened, but many right. other cities, as we know, Nice, Paris, Brussels, right. and many others are threatened. If They need to do the same if kind of Dr. thing. If Dr. Kissinger's talks about a new world order, Order. Part of our next administration in a time of stagnant economic growth is to jumpstart a new diplomacy. You were just up at Tufts celebrating uh, the Fletcher School with a lot of smart people on this. What can be our new diplomacy to our listeners who are Trump supporters, Clinton supporters, or just plain worn out? Well, I think, uh, and, and I've, uh, as you mentioned earlier, I've done a paper on this for the Atlantic Council. The goal, in my judgment, is to develop economic alliances, economic relationships that underpin our geopolitical alliances, both in Europe and uh, and in Asia, through TPP in Asia and through TTIP in Europe. Now, these sound like acronyms and they're technical, but the idea behind this is just what Truman and Marshall did after World War II, and that is strengthen our economic ties with these countries, which underpin our political and our geopolitical ties. And we need to do this not just with our major allies and friends in in the Pacific and in Europe, but we need to work with pivotal countries like 
India, like Turkey, well, like Indonesia. We have Bob, to get these countries on our side. Bob, also. We've got to run, go, run out of time. Robert Hormetz of Kissinger Associates. Richard Haas of the Council on Foreign Relations. Ambassador Haas, I heard last night Secretary Clinton speak of a need for much greater intelligence. I heard Mr. Trump ask, when will we learn? Somewhere in the middle is a response to the terror of the weekend or the terror of the week. The pattern is here. We all know that. What is the Haas to do in American policy? Well, the, the first thing to do, Tom, is to begin with some realism in the sense that this is now part of the world we're living in. Everyone talks about eliminating terrorism and all that, but it's more likely to be a, a long-term problem that we, we deal with, We at best we, we manage. We've got to go after it when we have targets. We've got to make ourselves less vulnerable uh, to it. Uh, I think a big part of it, though, is if you think about ISIS and groups like it are not simply as organizations which, which constitute a physical target you can attack or you can try to track their communications and their plans. I'm much more worried about if there was an idea or a movement or a network that inspired people, presumably like this, this guy who drove the truck in, in Nice or people we've seen recently in the United States. And that requires all sorts of contacts with cooperation with various communities that are, are the places where recruits are going to, to come from. So there's, there's not a, a simple or single quote-unquote solution here. What you're really talking about is dealing with this both offensively and defensively on multiple fronts uh, in the United States and around the world. Within this is, is the, the primal scream, are we safe? And what do we do? How do you find a distinction at the Council on Foreign Relations between your international relations and geopolitics and the idea of a lone wolf? The short answer is we're, by and large, if you will, in the macro sense, we're, we're relatively safe. If you look at this moment in history compared to others, we're not facing anything like, say, the, the two world wars of the, of the 20th uh, century. And the overall numbers of people, thank God, who have been killed by terrorists are still you know, relatively small if one compares it again to world wars or even wars like Korea or, or Vietnam. On the other hand, in the micro sense, we're not safe. And what I think Nice shows or San Bernardino shows or anything shows is that individuals armed with box or trucks or weapons can attack individuals, particularly where large numbers of, of people congregate, be it at shopping malls or at holidays or Super Bowls, you, you, you name it. So that, that's the reality. And what we can simply do is, is try to make ourselves less vulnerable, particularly where large numbers uh, congregate. And again, I think the whole large thrust has got to be, can we try to slow the recruitment? Can we try to discover those who have been radicalized? And that requires probably more intrusive law enforcement, more of a domestic issue, greater international cooperation, yes. And above all, what we need are leaders of these communities, which are producing the recruits, to delegitimize what these people are doing and to cooperate. With, with the authorities. Do we have the legal framework in place to accomplish what you're talking about, or is, is this uh, another battle in Congress to get something like the Patriot Act through? Certain authorities have expired. 
So I, what I'm hoping this does, though it's always dangerous uh, to do this, to say what I'm going to say, is that it tees up this debate again about what is the proper balance. Where do we want the pendulum to, to go between what you might call individual liberties and protections and collective security? And what degree of intrusiveness do we want to have about such things as social media, about email, about all other forms of uh, communications? And my, my guess is that some of the authorities that we need have been allowed to lapse. So my, my own hope is that the pendulum swings slightly, emphasize the word slightly, more in the direction of collective security. But I don't want to go remotely as far as some of the things I'm hearing out there about giving people religious tests and so forth. I think that is uh, counterproductive in the extreme. Well, do you worry that we're in a climate now where those things are things you would have dismissed out of hand before might get through. Uh, the, the whole question of authoritarianism coming up and people wanting a strong leader, wanting uh, laws suspended to you know, take care of this issue, make us feel safe. Look, when people get frightened enough, uh, whether it's because of runaway inflation or because of security threats to, to their physical self, uh, they're, they're more open to radical ideas. And it's, again, it's one of the reasons that I constantly urge that we do certain things to keep the, the level of threat and the level of vulnerability down. But, but I take your point. And if, if the United States becomes, if you will, what Israel had to go through 20 years ago, where simply going to a movie theater or to a supermarket becomes an act of courage, or if you remember, what was it, 25 years ago, when there was the sniper in Washington, and simply filling up your car with a tank of gas became yeah, a, uh, yeah, an act yeah. of some courage. That affects our way of life. And yeah, if people can't do normal things, then they are much more open to abnormal or radical ideas. And we've got to guard against that. If we assume that we're exhausted, I mean, we stagger as we did last night from Orlando to Dallas to Nice, maybe the next place will be Brussels again, who knows? Or There's extreme Richard Haas for good politicians to do. Do you have any confidence a democracy can do against terror, against a lone wolf? Well, again, in the, in the immediate sense, if it's a lone wolf who comes out uh, uh, without any history... Like Sydney. Uh, sure. Then, no, we're going to be vulnerable in the specific, granular, micro sense. What, we, what we've got to do, though, is try to reduce those incidents. And that, again, argues for surveillance and, and keeping open relationships with, with critical leaders in, 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 in selected communities. And we've got to think about how we make our society more resilient. And they mean certain, you know, but look, we, we've changed the way, what we do before we get in an airplane. So one of the questions that needs to be, do we need to change the way we act before we get on buses or trains? Do we need to change the way we act before we enter shopping malls or other places where large numbers congregate? And the answer may be yes, even though it means a degree of inefficiency, more time, discomfort, a certain loss of privacy when you get searched. We maybe say we need to make this trade-off. So uh, I think that's the kind of conversation we as a society need to have. Richard Haas is with us from the Council on Foreign Relations. And Richard, uh, we've been talking about what we can do and what we can expect within the borders of this country. Is there more that the United States and its allies can do? Are we getting to a point where people might say, let's just go into uh, Syria and Iraq and wipe out this caliphate? Well, again, if you look at what's happened over the last few months, ISIS has been losing territory. And what we're seeing is as they lose territory in Syria and Iraq, rather than solving the problem, what they're doing is turning to other techniques. The bombings in Saudi Arabia, the bombings in Iraq, the bombings in Turkey, now this in France, either as 
sponsored actions by ISIS or simply inspired actions. So yes, we should do more in the Middle East for lots of reasons, but we shouldn't kid ourselves that we can quote unquote resolve or or dis, or solve this problem, even if we were phenomenally successful in the region. Because even by the way, if we were to roll back ISIS in some of these places, it's not clear what sort of authority would 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 fill that vacuum. It's not as though you've got a bunch of Jeffersonian Democrats reading the Federalist Papers in Arabic translation who are simply waiting there in the wings. So again, we we've got to understand that. Even if we were to be somewhat more successful on the ground in the region, that's not going to solve the sort of problem right. we just saw 24 hours ago in Nice. Richard, thank you so much. Ambassador Haas is the president of the Council on Foreign Relations, again, on a challenging day after a most difficult evening. This is Michael McKee at the Rocky Mountain Economic Summit out in Victor, Idaho. Tom Keene is yeah. uh, in the studio in New York. And uh, Tom, the terror attack, obviously, front and center for everybody here. But central bank policy is the main subject that most of the attendees have been talking about the last couple of days. Without question, uh, that is the case. And I'll be honest, Mike, it is a wonderful day to be in Victor, Idaho. After what we've witnessed here uh, last night, we particularly thank Robert Hormatz for his comments and for all of us in New York at Bloomberg 1130, particularly his comments about the work done every day by the intelligence forces and police officers of New York City. On to economics. It is a good time to speak with Marvin Goodfriend of Carnegie Mellon about our unusual economics. Marvin, as you walk into your office at Carnegie Mellon, I've had the privilege to speak out there for you and Alan Meltzer, and you walk in and your desk is over to the left with a Sidney Crosby poster, and to the right is a wonderful bookshelf with all of your books on it. Negative interest rates and helicopter money are not in your textbooks, are they? No, not at all. But, but you know, I have to deal with them in my classes. What, Olivier Blanchard was on yesterday, and he was heated calling helicopter money a scam. Is our desperation of stimulus in the monetary space a scam? You know, actually, I think that's the helicopter money issue, I think, in the U.S. is probably behind us because I think we really needed to think about moving rates up after the labor report and wage growth and so forth. For the first time in in, in about and say maybe eight years, ten years, I'm worried about what we used to call wage price spiral. I may get ahead of myself at this point, but I'm, I'm changing my perspective. Uh, Let me ask you this. We see a slight tick up in wages and a slight tick up in prices, but no movement at all in inflation expectations. Don't we have to see that before you could get a wage price spiral? Because nobody's going to be asking. It doesn't look like anybody's ready to ask for a raise, put it that way. Well, I mean, you are seeing the wage growth numbers move up from, you know, the 2% range to closer to 3% range. And we are near full employment in terms of our labor market unemployment rate. The job growth numbers seem to be averaging after a week number last month in the vicinity of 150,000. And that's well above what most people think is the estimate of the the break-even point at which we, you know, stabilize the labor force. I think, and, and I might add that, you know, if you go back to the 60s, you know, when we had the beginnings of the so-called great inflation, the bond markets didn't get that. 
It's not that the bond markets really are able to forecast these things before they happen. They, in general, I think they're a lagging indicator. What happens is after inflation starts to move, then the bond markets get very nervous. But at a period like this, which is more like the late 60s, where we haven't had a concern about inflation, I wouldn't expect the bond markets to show the expected inflation concern until after the inflation moves. But we're not seeing it with the public either in the uh, surveys, the Michigan survey or the New York well, Fed survey we, of consumer attitudes. Here's the thing about it. I mean, and that was also true in the late 60s. Um, you know, it's, it comes out of nowhere. And the reason it does is because inflation, when it starts to move up, is, is like a kind of an anarchy. It starts from the bottom up. It doesn't start from the top down. Firms take matters into their own hands. They become a little bit more, uh, less resistant to wage pressures on the bottom feeling that they can push those off in higher prices. And this happens literally bit by bit in the economy, and it doesn't become obvious to the people who look at the economy as a whole until after it begins to happen. That's the that's well, history of how inflation breaks out after a long period of quiescence. I, I featured today, Professor Goodfriend, CPI and core CPI. And I'm sorry, core CPI is quadratic and in an overshoot above 2%. What's the level of overshoot that's acceptable? Well, I, th I think you put your finger on it, Tom. In my mind, the big question mark here is how the Federal Reserve is going to react vis-a-vis -vis its so-called 2% inflation target. There's, a quest there's been a big debate on, on the inside, and I suppose you, you guys have talked about it as well. You know, we've had a, a long period of undershooting the 2% inflation target, and there are a lot of people who are arguing that the Fed should let inflation move above the 2% inflation target for quite a while, because there's a lot. You, what you want to do after a long period is have inflation average at 2%. The Fed has not quite been clear about whether or not that's its intention, or whether it wants to regard the 2% target as kind of an upper bound that it's shooting for. And so that's what I think is the big question mark, and until the Fed settles that, I think this inflation question is, 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 is wide open. Quickly, Professor Goodfriend, are you advocating a rate rise right now at the next meeting? I, I, would, I would accept it, and, but I think certainly the interest rate uh, pass should be, okay. well, the Fed should resume its, increase, its, its interest rate increases by September, in my view. It's a quarter well, point is not much to worry about. It's more important to put on the table the Fed's resistance to higher inflation. We need to get, you, to back. Well, we need to get you back for a longer period. Marvin Goodfriend, thank you so much with Carnegie Mellon University. To link in what banks are dealing with, with the overall bond market, is one Jeffrey Rosenberg. He has been of immense value to us in talking not only about something as silly as a single point yield, 1.53% in the 10-year, but the spread market and the dynamics of his fixed income space. Good morning. Thank did you did I much. hear that if you get a Grand Banks 48 for the summer, you're going to rent one out and tour Buzzards Bay, you're going to call the boat negative yields? <laughs> It's funny. I, I do need a boat it, name. It, it, that's, that's negative yield. I mean, I mean, it's a, as Olivier Blanchard said yesterday, this is perverse, the milieu you're working in every day. Yeah, th there's something really interesting about what a, a negative yield means. You know, there's a, there's a fundamental idea in, in finance about what a positive interest rate means. What a positive interest rate means is that a dollar today is worth more than a dollar tomorrow. That's a pretty fundamental concept, yeah. right? It's pretty simple. But if you have a negative interest rate, the implication is that people say or are implying when they uh, invest in things that have negative interest rates that a dollar tomorrow is worth more than a dollar today. 
that that's really through the looking glass kind of stuff and that's why financial markets have not liked policy intervention that brings interest rates yeah. to negative but mike what he does there is link himself to becker and thaler at chicago and schiller at yale to the behavioral the emotion of this math and finance well the question was raised jeff here at the uh, rocky mountain summit yesterday of why not just take advantage of this opportunity? The government sells more treasuries, uh, not just not the United States, maybe, but other sovereigns sells more uh, of their sovereigns at, at a negative interest rate and just you know, basically pockets the money and bends on infrastructure or something like that uh, because uh, there's no penalty to them. You know, people are paying them. Yeah, and, and, you know, this is front and center, and we're going to see this uh, later this month in Japan. Japan is is sort of the, the preview of where every other developed market economy is going, and, and that is exactly the debate. Interest rates are negative. The BOJ is fully in the process of monetizing debt. Here's the problem. The problem is that the, the issue isn't on how you finance it. The issue is how does the stimulus that governments can provide with this low cost or negative costing money, how is that stimulus really functioning in the real economy? And what Tom was talking about, the behavioral aspect of this stuff, is that you have this little thing called animal spirits. And sometimes when central banks are so aggressive and are so telling the message that things are so bad that we need to do things that no one really knows what the consequences are, you get this cost associated with those policy interventions. And the cost is it damages confidence. It damages animal spirits. We saw this no. in Japan in, in January 29th when they announced the policy to negative interest rates. It backfired. Okay, I want to get you in trouble right now. One Lawrence Fink yesterday made global headlines as a chief executive officer of a small startup shop called BlackRock. And Mr. Fink, good morning, Mr. Fink, if you're listening to, your, to young Rosenberg, Mr. Fink suggested that the equity markets were acting in an odd manner. Would you like to brief our audience, including Mr. Fink, that this is a fixed income and equity bubble right now? Well, you did say at the beginning you were going to get me into trouble. So, uh, yes, you are. Uh, look, the, 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 the issue here is very much related to what Bernanke called the portfolio rebalance channel. This totally is, agree, this, by the way. This is explicit. He's, yeah. He said, we're going to make safe assets like bonds, yields, very unattractive. That's what zero, that's what negative means. And so you get everybody incentivized by these policies to push out the risk but it has, spectrum. But come on, it hasn't worked. It's sitting, and it it's, it's sitting it in has, perverseness on balance sheets. It, it, it hasn't worked because the point of it working was to stimulate through a wealth effect confidence. The problem is that stimulating through a wealth effect confidence has all sorts of unanticipated and underappreciated costs to, to that confidence. So it's, 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 it hasn't delivered on the growth that was expected. But when we observe this experiment, and if cogent people can say it really hasn't worked as an experiment, what is the outcome when we unwind the experience? Can, with the huge responsibilities that Mr. Diamond or Mr. Corbett or Mr. Fink have, can they unwind this with smooth glide pass, or are there going to be jump conditions that are really ugly? 
you can't really unwind it. And the answer is we don't know. Well, and we, we don't know, and because we don't know, no one's willing to take the, the chance on unwinding it. And, and that's exactly what the Fed, and in its communications this year, is, has evolved. And that's what the post-Brexit bond market is really telling you in terms of reaching historic low levels of rates. What we've done is we've removed the notion that we're going to normalize anytime soon. The Fed said that they were going to raise four times this year. Uh-huh. Now the bond market barely prices them doing anything at all this year. That's changing this notion of, are we going to get back to some kind of normal? Are we going to be able to unwind these unconventional monetary policies? Or are we going to have to go the next step? And this is what Japan is dealing with. They're going to have to go to the next step. What is the next step? Very quickly here. The the next step, we've talked about it on this program before, is variations of helicopter money. Monetary policy financing fiscal policy, fiscal and monetary policy coordination. Thank you to Olivier Blanchard yesterday for calling helicopter money a scam. That will be part of the uh, interesting dialogue. Jeffrey Rosenberg, too short today. Thank you so much. He is with BlackRock, and hopefully his badge at BlackRock will work on Monday. Uh, We will see. Jeff Rosenberg, uh, Chief Strategist for BlackRock. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.